Hello and welcome back to the Annick Castle podcast. Today's episode is a special look at life below stairs at Annick Castle during the Victorian period. We know a lot about the Dukes and Duchesses of Northumberland at this time, but maybe less so about the dozens of staff from butlers to housekeepers to maids who looked after them and kept their lives running through domestic service. I was joined by Nicola, who spent many hours finding out as much information as possible about some of the people who were working for the Percy family and Annette Castle during this time. We sat down to share some of this information and some of Nicola's favourite anecdotes about life below stairs at Annette Castle. Our conversation was recorded in a room within the castle with very high ceilings. If you hear a little bit more echo than usual, this might be why. Here's our conversation and I hope you enjoy it. I'm very happy to be joined on this Below Stairs episode of the Annick Castle podcast by Nicola, who's done hours and hours and months and months of research into the subject. How are you today, Nicola? I'm very well, Daniel. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for coming. And I'd like to start by asking you about your research into Life Below Stairs at Annick Castle. It started way back in the late 1990s when I was a student. I was lucky enough to be working at the archives department at the time as a student coming in during the summer holidays and it got to my final kind of dissertation year and I had to pick a subject and I was always quite interested in kind of social history, particularly kind of women and I thought working in the castle, domestic servants kind of fitted that bill really well. So I started having a bit of a dig around and with a little bit of a help from the the archivist at the time guiding me, I decided that would be an excellent subject. So I started the research and wrote a nice little, hopefully nice little dissertation on it many, many moons ago. And what period did you look at? Was it a particular part of the castle's history? It was particularly Victorian. For domestic servants, that is kind of the heyday of when service was at its best or at its highest across the the entire country, not just obviously in Annick Castle. So it was kind of the timeline of the, the fourth to the seventh Duke, so kind of 1850 up to just about before the First World War started. What sort of info is available about that period? We know quite a lot about the Dukes and Duchesses, mm-hmm. especially in the Victorian period when things like photography are coming in. Mm-hmm. But what do we know about the people who served those Dukes and Duchesses? At the time, the majority of the information was kind of financial information because there was ledgers that detailed the wages, the salaries and the board of different servants. So you could go through, started off half yearly, but as you got through kind of um, 1870s, 1880s, it hit a kind of quarterly ledger so you could map individual servants through their wages, their promotions, it did happen occasionally, and how long they worked. Sometimes they disappeared, sometimes they came back, and that kind of gave you indications of kind of the working habits. There was also some really important documents that were written a little bit earlier, but they were still relevant to the time period. They were written in the time of the Second Duke. So you're talking late 1790s, very early 1800s. He very much was a a military man, So it's very unsurprising that one of the things he insisted on in his household was an order and regulation. So there was manuals written, the orders and the regulations of household management that were stipulated for lots of individual servants. Um, Some of them got kind of named by job title, not by person. And general rules to be followed that were displayed 
in the servants' hall in Anik, and in Sign House, um, also in the kind of waiting room of the servants' hall. So there was no excuse not to know what the rules and guidelines were? Yes, if you didn't memorise them, you saw them every single time you ate during the day, so at least twice a day. What would life have been like for people in service at this time? Can we tell much from those ledgers? You can, but there's a lot of kind of contemporary information as well. Most contemporary information is written more about, or certainly when I was doing my research, was written more about kind of Victorian households because there was something that was deemed or nicknamed the servant problem in the late 1800s, 1880s to 1900 time period where middle-class families were struggling to get servants. The population was exploding, and industrialisation had a huge impact. The rise of the middle classes meant all these new middle-class people wanted to prove they were middle-class by having a servant. Mm. Aristocratic families are written about, but they kind of don't fit that criteria. So a lot of papers might have been in private hands, so maybe some families didn't always kind of give access. I was very lucky to get access to the information I got. It was interesting to see, and you were able to kind of fit a pattern or identify where in this kind of household the pattern didn't fit the the norm. Life would have been hard. By today's standard, a 15-hour day sounds just in itself difficult, regardless of the fact that it was heavy lifting, lifting water, lifting coals, dirty, lighting fires. But in comparison to households as I said, middle-class households that might have one servant, it would have been, easy is the wrong word, but relatively. Yeah, more specialised tasks for more people across the building. Because, obviously, you've got a bigger building, you've got a larger family or um, family members that are getting individual servants. You've got a household that needs managing even when the family isn't here. So it is a different kind of kettle of fish. So the servant numbers varied depending on where the family was in the country. We're talking a period as well, 1850s to mid-1860s, when the castle itself was under restoration. So it wasn't occupied as much as the main kind of residence, other than the London season. It wasn't occupied as the main residence because it was under reconstruction. So you had a core staff. So some of the years, there was, you know, eight, ten servants here for long periods of the time, keeping the house ticking over, essentially, And that would then increase for part of the year if the family came back. But that increased more so after the restorations were completed in the 1860s. And was it more usual for servants to travel with the family? Or would more of them have started to stay at the castle all year round? There's a mixture, to be honest. And at this time period, there's quite a few different houses. So even in Northumberland itself, you're talking about there's a castle up at Kielder, which was used as a shooting lodge. There's a um, property in Almouth, so not very far away, 10, 15 miles. You also had properties in York and Sussex and Sign House being the main one, and London itself. Not Northumberland House by those times, but there was a property in Grosvenor Street. So core servants would stay with the family. The servants that dealt directly with the family members, if you think about a valet for the the duke or the the lords and the earls, the the male children, duchesses maid, ladies maid for the duchess or the female children, they would accompany, you know, their master for want of a better word. Whereas the, the servants that would remain at the castle would be, you'd have the butler, you'd have the housekeeper. They had to keep things ticking over, make sure everything was running correctly, but you also had more kind of a security and odd jobsman 
presence. So you had a, a lamp man to ensure, you know, we're talking of the times when it was gas. So mm-hmm. making sure that the castle didn't catch on fire because everything was lit or unlit. Or Fire safety is very important. Exactly. And it remains so to this day. I think the job title lamp man probably doesn't exist these days. You also had a comptroller, sometimes he was called a constable, who was in charge of not just the household, the the finance and the estate side of things, and a gate porter to ensure anyone coming in had a right or need to, and there weren't just people wandering in and out. So these are some of the roles that you might have heard about if you've watched Downton Abbey and similar programmes, butlers, valets, ladies' maids. How was it structured at the castle? Was it in that Downton aspect of one person in charge of all the rest of the downstairs staff or was it subdivided a little bit more? Servants was very hierarchical. You had what was classed as upper servants and lower servants so that was kind of written into the terminology. Then add on the extra layer of servants that worked for aristocratic families were seen as a better class of servant so you had a higher class of lower servant and a higher class of upper servant than you would expect in other buildings, other households, smaller properties. Upper servants generally were those that had the the most responsibility or were dealing with the Duke or Duchess personally. So from the male side, you would have the butler. The groom of chambers was actually in charge of the butler. So most people think the male head was the butler. The butler was in charge of the male servants, but the groom of chambers was the one that dealt directly with the Duke. So he had slightly more responsibility. On the female side, the housekeeper sometimes maybe feared but she would have been in charge of the females um, to make sure all the various classes of maids were kind of doing their job and there was no tittle-tattle and just you know not getting on with things in the correct order so they were the upper servants lower servants there's a whole host of maids basically choose a room and add the word maid to it kitchen maid still room maid housemaid housemaids in themselves were also structured so you had a housemaid one housemaid two housemaid three and through tracking the the wages you could see some of them move up so the the fifth housemaid the next year was the fourth housemaid one of the housemaids actually became the housekeeper it it didn't happen very often but it did occasionally happen and you can't say it never happened And I'm going to ask about the still room maid. What did the still room maid have to do? The still room maid would help the housekeeper. It was kind of connected to the kitchen, but not quite connected to the kitchen um, because they had their own kitchen maid. So the still room maid may assist with um, coffees, preserves, that type of thing, and be slightly higher than the housemaid, but still underneath the, the housekeeper. During this period of castle restoration, new kitchens were fitted as well. So where do cooks and chefs and that side of things come into it? How much did they communicate with other parts of the household or were they their own entity? Two of my favourite anecdotes are about the chefs and quite possibly different chefs. One, there was a Mr Thorpe and in, I think it was 1887 off the top of my head, um, he actually hosted a four-day cookery course in Annick. So that kind of shows almost like he was a local celebrity, that people were paying to see him demonstrate and teach cookery locally. Most of the the chefs or cooks were misters. We have had some female cooks or chefs at the castle, and they tended to change about 1900 onwards, but most of them were male. 
But my other favourite anecdote is there was a later addition to the household management orders, and it was in the 1840s, I think it was, and it was written that the chef didn't have to suffer any other staff in the kitchen. And it was the, the use of the word suffer. I always think, is this a chef that... And I'm sure we can think of famous chefs that are known for their language and flying off the handle. Mm -hmm. Or was it a case that people were just getting in the kitchen and getting under the chef's feet and people thought, you know, hang on, we don't want the chef interrupted. So I, I do like that anecdote. We don't quite know what happened, but it kind of creates a, a thought process of all these different possibilities that you can still kind of imagine today. One of the things that we have left that directly involves the servants of this time is the Percy State coach in yes. the coach house. Mm -hmm. And we've still got the livery uniform yeah. of some of the drivers of those coaches. How did the traveling of the family from place to place affect servants? Did they have their own separate quarters? How did stables and horses come into it? Or is that a whole other thing? It's a bit of both, to be honest with you. I'm not 100% sure what the stabling facilities were like in kind of Sign House and other properties, but you would have had a coach and its postillion, its footman, its um, coachman, who were responsible for taking the family, whether it's the Duke and Duchess or um, various lords, ladies, children, etc., to different family members. The uniform that they wore was actually noted as one of the most exuberant and well-recognised of all the aristocratic families. You know, the Percy livery in its bright blue and its silver buttons. Some of the instructions, particularly for the footmen, describe how their part of their job responsibility is to ensure that their whites are white and their silvers are cleaned and polished. So uniform, I suppose the closest thing we can think of today is a uniform for staff or a school uniform. You see something and you know who they work for. And that's exactly what it was, you know, for the livery that the footmen were. It was a brand, essentially. It's almost like your Victorian update of the medieval banner flying exactly. at the head of your army. Yes, yes. And the, uh, and the wigs and the, the powder and I imagine quite a lot of itching that went on with it. The, the coach house is an interesting example of how kind of the advance of technology changed the lives of the servants because you could track a coachman who actually became a chauffeur so the demise of the horses very early 1900s I think it was 1909 the first chauffeur was noted in the ledgers so you had a small period where there was a bit of a you hadn't quite fully committed to motor cars because you know it's new technology do we want to but then you know those jobs disappear and the, the rise of the you know the motor car by the start of the First World War, they're known as the Stables and Motors Department. So ah, th there is a development going yeah. on. We've got images of chauffeurs with the cars. Yes. We've got photos still of people with their horses in the castle courtyard. Yeah. But all of these servants must have needed somewhere to live. The vast majority must have been living in the castle. The vast majority would have been. But again, by the start of the 1900, things were starting to change. And one thing that was evident in the, the ledgers was that rent was starting to be paid for some of the predominantly male higher-up servants. So some of them lived nearby in Annick, um, but they had houses and the, the, the rent was paid by the, the Duke. But the majority, they would be starting work at six o'clock in the morning. If the family was entertaining, they might not be finishing work until midnight. So you probably wanted to be on site. 
Um, one of the jobs of the gate porter was to make sure that servants didn't leave without permission. So they were definitely um, housed in various bedrooms throughout, as well as having their own servants' hall, which the servants were served by an usher in the, when they had their meals. So the servant had their own servants. A servant well. for servants. Yes. And do we know what happened if the gate porter caught anyone? It was reported to the Duke. I did read correspondence about a few um, servants being dismissed, not for leaving um, when not given permission, but one was a member of staff who was caught drunk on duty. So I think they'd been kind of maybe over-indulging on the, the one pint of ale they were allowed a day or the port or Lisbon wine was the only wine allowed on the table. So maybe they were having a little bit more than their fair share. And also um, it was a member of the garden staff, but I think they were with a member of the household staff in 1902 were caught um, shooting rabbits on the Duke's land and that was instant dismissal. But they did get perks and they did get oh, pay yes. as well. What they were did. some of those? In comparison to um, middle-class families and actually in comparison to other landed families or aristocratic families at the time, the pay was good. The conditions were good as well. One of the um, stipulations in the second Duke's household orders was that the rooms that the servants occupied had ventilation, they had a fireplace, they had a window. So kind of think of the image of Victorian middle-class households Poor young girl stuck in an attic, stuck in a cellar somewhere. You know, they, they had a proper light room. They may have had to share that room, but they had a proper light room. Other perks would have included the opportunity to travel, even if that was to another property and they were still working. Not many people had that opportunity easily to travel. Sometimes that travel included going abroad. So ladies' maids would accompany the, the Duchess or one of the, the elder female children on trips to Madeira was one. Um, that I recall. So they were certainly kind of perks that wouldn't be afforded to your, your average kind of domestic servant. Were they paid well for the time? Comparatively, yes. But if you look at the wages now, you, you'd look at them and go, oh, that's not very much. But if you, th- if you place it in its time compared to other people in a similar kind of role, yes, the pay was a lot better. And plus, when they were working, they probably had very little expenditure. So some of the young girls in particular, the housemaids, may be expected to send money home um, because they wouldn't have to buy their food. They got to eat the leftovers from the banquet, which you're thinking leftovers, but it's good quality food. Um, they got the medical care taken care of medical expenses any medical attendance was covered by the duke they also occasionally got sums of money for mourning so on the death of the sixth duchess and the sixth duke they got um, a small i think it was something like five or ten pound depending on their role but they got a small amount of money which again in the today we might think that's not a lot but as a bonus that would have been considerable at the time so not the highest of wages but comparatively a lot better than some of their the counterparts the other thing about domestic servants is that it wasn't a unionized kind of industry the rise of the factories trade unions were starting to really come into force in the victorian period they were now there was an attempt to raise kind of a, a union for servants and i think it lasted less than five years in the 1890s because of lack of membership maybe servants were a little bit worried about if they spoke out of turn they would lose their occupation and i suppose as well rural northumberland It's quite a hike to the nearest kind of big factories, if you're thinking Newcastle, maybe Ashington kind of coal mining areas, the southeast of um, Northumberland. So there might not have been as many opportunities if they didn't want to go too far away from their family. Yeah. And 
there would have been a lot of them to have these considerations. It must have been a big household to keep the yeah. castle and all these other houses running. Do we know what the numbers were? 1795 is the earliest date I recall. It was written down how many different servants were allowed to eat in the servants' hall. So it gave an indication that there was 37 different individuals that might have fluctuated. If a visitor came to the family and they brought their own servants, those servants would be allowed to use the, the servants' hall. That They wouldn't get any kind of different treatment to the servants that already worked here. So that was 1795, about 37. During the, the restoration periods, 1850s, 1860s, the core staff was about eight, maybe ten. Once that had finished, by the 1870s, 1880s, you've seen it return to kind of the 30s, 40s figures. That was about it. But that, again, is Annick Castle with some of those servants travelling. There would have been core staff at all of the properties. Kielder Castle, for example, I think it was a married couple. And so there was two staff there permanently. And it's only nowadays an hour's drive, maybe. But it would have been a considerable kind of trip up to the, the shooting lodge, as it was referred to then. And a couple of servants would have been taken. But each property would have had core staff, but that number would have varied. And actually looking at the wages, because of maybe the, the differences in the number of staff needed at individual houses, some of the job roles, some got paid more than others, which maybe indicated they had a little bit more responsibility because there was fewer staff to look after in, in some of the other properties. Do we know much about any of these individuals beyond the basics? Has anything come to light through family correspondence or did anyone write any memoirs or anything like not that? Not at the time. It was always my big hope that I would just find this little piece of paper and little anecdotes like someone being dismissed because they were, you know, round shooting a rabbit. Um, one of, well, a great anecdote I did read was actually in one of the visitors' books a few years back where um, a lady wrote that her great, 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 however many great um, had been a housemaid here and she'd been in a position where she'd left a window open one night and the next day got a little bit of a telling off because the Duke had caught a chill and that, yes, that wasn't, you know, to do. You never know. There's always a hope that you just find a piece of paper and I imagine that there's a lot more known about it nowadays because cataloguing and looking at documentation is always continuing so you always find out new information so information now available would probably be more than what I was aware of 20 years ago but it doesn't mean that there still isn't stuff to be identified and you never know someone listening might have a diary yeah if you do know anybody from your family history who's got a connection to Annick Castle do get in touch let us know we'll give contact details at the end of the episode when we did our first world war exhibition about seven or eight years ago it was amazing how many people either got in touch or came to the exhibition, spotted a relative, and had extra stories and things we found out. Yeah, and I loved that about... I was lucky enough to be a guide when this exhibition was on, and I loved um, just being able to read through the information and realise how much more information was available by the time that exhibition was put together than I had known. And, of course, I'm talking, doing research kind of pre-internet days, so even just access to things like family searches, um, family history that information, it's a lot easier to find. So you can get probably a lot more information. If I did it again now, I'd probably find out a lot more about the individuals. And what sort of things would you like to find out if you 
managed to get back in the archive. I, I think being able to track some of the individuals to see if they went to other households, I think that would be interesting just to kind of see the movement of people and also to see if any of the women remained after marrying. It was always preferred men and women um, to be preferred to be single, but normally service was seen as a, a training ground for women for marriage. It was a respectable occupation in those regards so that the expectation was they married, they left. So I'd love to be able to just do a little, choosing a few people and just doing a little bit of a, a dig and seeing what you can come up with. So on that note, with the hope of finding out more in the future, Nicola, thank you very much for joining us on the Castle podcast today. Thank you very much. If you'd like to see the coach house at Annick Castle, it is still open daily for visitors and the Percy State Coach is still in pride of place. If you visit the state rooms during your time at Annick Castle, as you exit, you will see photos of many of the domestic servants from the years 1906 and 1908 when they were photographed in their departments, probably in preparation for a royal visit. If you have any information about your relatives or ancestors, who may have worked in service at Annick Castle or any of the other Percy properties, we'd love to hear about them. Please get in touch by emailing podcast at annickcastle.com or by tweeting us at Annick Castle. If you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please share it with your friends, subscribe to the feed so you don't miss an episode, and give us a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of the Annick Castle podcast, but for now, I've been Daniel. Thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. Goodbye.